Well, the title of this morning's message is Waiting for the Spirit. Waiting for the Spirit. You remember that with the risen and ascended and glorified Lord at the Father's right hand in heaven, we now come to the disciples as they are for the first time in their experience after meeting Christ, they're without his physical presence and they're waiting for the Spirit of God just as he commanded them. We begin already in chapter 1 and this section that we will study today from verses 12 to 26 to see some foundational principles beginning to work themselves out. We see the leadership of what will soon be the church. We see Peter taking initiative again to lead, and we see the unity of church. We see it, their togetherness and their common devotion to Christ. We see the church's dependence upon prayer in this passage. We see they are completely reliant upon the word of God for the explanation of both past events and their present situation. We also see the church's willingness to obey the Lord in everything. And these, these things are foundational. These things are just as true in our day as they were in Peter's. You remember Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit was poured out. And Luke gives us some of the action that took place during that 10-day period in which they were waiting you remember that the, the text in Luke told us that after they had worshipped him there on the Mount of Olives, they returned to Jerusalem where they were worshipping daily in the temple, continually in the temple. We see them again here in earnest prayer. We see them giving attention to the word. We see them eating meals together. And we, we tend to think when, the, when it says that they were just continually in prayer that there were a group of 120 people on their knees with their eyes closed doing nothing but praying. And that's not really the picture. Life was continuing on just as life continues on for us, and yet here were a group of people clearly given to the worship of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they are waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. And what dominates this entire section really is that there was a need to choose a successor for Judas who had betrayed Christ and... He had then taken his life, as you know, in guilt and shame. And so what we read this morning, some have taken to kind of just be historical filler. It is anything but that. It was written for our instruction and for our encouragement. And we need to ask the question, what is it that we learn from these earlier or earliest followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, number one, we learned that they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Look at verse 12. The text tells us, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. The disciples and their followers had made their way down the Mount of Olives and into the Kidron Valley and now back up about an elevation of 200 feet and through those thick walls of Jerusalem and unless you've been to Jerusalem, you don't really have any concept of how far that distance is. And so Luke tells us it was a Sabbath day's journey. Luke is not telling us that the journey took place on the Sabbath. What he's saying is the distance of this journey was what the Jews understood to be a Sabbath day's journey. He's talking about the distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. You remember that Luke is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus, and Theophilus doesn't know about this geography, and so Luke is spelling these things out for people like Theophilus and people like most of us. Jewish tradition talked about a Sabbath day journey. And it was built on Exodus 16.29, which required that a man not go out of his place on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Well, Joshua 3.4 was combined with that text, which uses similar language. And it speaks about the distance that people were to travel behind the ark when the ark would go out, when the ark of the covenant would go out 
it gave them the distance in that text of Scripture, Joshua 3, 4, and it said the people were to travel at a distance of 2,000 cubits. Now, you don't know what a cubit is, and neither do I, but I do know how to read, and I found out that a cubit, roughly this translates into 3,600 feet, about three-quarters of a mile. That obviously spoke to the holiness of God that the people were to travel at that distance behind the ark. And this was to make the commandment here of a Sabbath day's journey measurable. How do you know when you've obeyed or disobeyed that commandment? Well, tradition defined it as roughly three-quarters of a mile. That's how far you could walk, according to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath day and no further. They, of course, made that a great legal issue which elevated them and condemned most others. They externalized the commandment again. But the people are going back now to Jerusalem and they're going in mass and they're going because the Lord commanded them to go and Luke wants us to know that it was about three-quarters of a mile. Verse 13 And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, this may have been the same room where they were, they shared the Last Supper with Christ. It seems highly probable that this is the room where those post resurrection appearances had taken place. It must have been a room of some size, 120 people we'll see gathered in there. And then Luke gives us the names of Jesus' disciples who were gathered. And if you count the names, you'll find that there are only 11, and this is a problem that we'll get to in a moment. They're listed for us, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. They're the 11 disciples. In addition to that, verse 14 tells us that they were all in one accord, which is a a theme in the book of Acts. They were all together and of one accord, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we have the 11 disciples. We have uh, these women who had financially supported Christ and traveled with him in Galilee. We have Jesus's mother there, and you'll notice at this prayer meeting, nobody is what? Praying to Mary. In fact, Mary is joining the disciples in praying to her son. This is the last mention, by the way, of Mary in the Bible. And then we have Jesus' brothers, which also says something about the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. The fact that Jesus had half-brothers born of Joseph and Mary says that that doctrine is errant. It's interesting that Jesus' brothers are listed. You'll remember that they were, they were mocking Christ not, not two months before this. Uh, they did not believe that their brother was, in fact, who he claimed to be. Post-resurrection, they know better. Now, I want you to note three things as we consider this gathering of these people, particularly as it relates to prayer. First of all, note that the men themselves were giving themselves to prayer, along with the women. Many churches, what you will find is that women are the ones who pray. Women are the ones who are early to church. Women are the ones at Bible studies. Women are the ones teaching their children. And women are right and to be recognized as noble for all of those things. But brothers in Christ, please take heed here that who is taking the lead in this prayer meeting is the men. Luke gives more ink to women in Christ's service than any other writer, and thus he should. Women have a high standing in the economy of God. But what we need to hear this morning, brothers, is this, that it wasn't just these women giving themselves to the matter of prayer. It was men, men with jobs, men with families, men with other responsibilities who were devoted to giving themselves to prayer. Brothers, how this church and this day and this age needs you and me 
to be men of prayer. They had put off their temporal pleasures. They had put off their plans. They had put off other priorities for the purpose of prayer. The second thing I want you to note is that they were unified. These people were in one accord. They were together while they were together. They, they had the same mind. Their mind was fixed on the same things, the things of God. They were seeking the things above. There were no factions. There was no grandstanding. There was no, no, no private priorities, no personal agendas, no self-seeking. But they were of one accord. They were together and they were unified. And thirdly, I would have you note that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This word, <clears throat> continually devoting, is a Greek word that refers to prevailing strength against difficulty. Think on that for a second in relationship to prayer. Anybody who's made any attempt to, to devote themselves to prayer understands this very thing. It's difficult. And these brothers and sisters had committed themselves to praying against that difficulty. They persisted in it. They persevered in it. They continued steadfastly in it. I have often heard other pastors mention as in conversation that, that the life of prayer is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. And I think that's right, at least in my own experience, which is why it requires devotion to it. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, we typically hear that this way. They were continually devoting, them, they were continually devoting their time to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. But that's not what the text says. It says they were continually devoting themselves. Most Christians I know have a, have a, have a somewhat spiritual romantic notion of praying. There have been times we've experienced its richness. There are times when we have gone in great need and we've seen the Lord give and we, we relish the idea of prayer, but we've never come to the point, frankly, of facing it honestly and saying, am I going to commit myself to this thing that God calls me to? In fact, I would say that is the biggest barrier to becoming somebody who is who is. Has, has got a mature prayer life is that you've never come to the place of really looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I'm going to do this. These people were not merely devoted to the value of prayer or the importance of prayer or the necessity of prayer. They did not have some sentimental notion of how wonderful prayer is. No, these people gave themselves to it. They devoted themselves to the work. I have said to you time and again, and I'll keep saying it, I think we will be surprised when we get to eternity to find out that the vast majority of the work that's been accomplished on earth has been accomplished because of the prayers of the saints, because that is the way that God has determined to accomplish his work through the prayers of his people. There are many people who are in a wheelchair who cannot do much for the kingdom of God. But they can do everything for the kingdom of God in prayer. There are people who are older, who, who do not have the strength they used to have to serve the Lord by going to Alaska and preaching the gospel. They may be homebound, but they can pray. There may be mothers who are very busy, but they can pray. There may be fathers whose time is occupied, but they can find time to pray. They can get up early and make time. How important is prayer in the kingdom of God? A humble man is a praying man. And beloved, a humble church is a praying church. And one of the most, if not the most foundational demonstrations of our dependence, true dependence upon God, is a life that seeks him in prayer and in worship. It is one of the primary ways that we worship him. It is primary that... It was one of the primary ways that we receive from him. We, we have not, why? Because we ask not. 
It's instructive, really, as we continue in Acts to know that this is going to be one of the themes in the book of Acts. Nobody talks about prayer more than Luke. Over and over and over and over again, both in his gospel and in this book, he will speak about prayer. We'll be sure and emphasize that so that we grow in our own conviction about these things. So they were continually, steadfastly together in prayer. That wasn't all they were doing. Number two, dependent upon Scripture. They were devoted to prayer and they were dependent upon Scripture. Verse 15, and in those days, what days? The the days between the Lord's ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost, these, these 10 days, this waiting period, what were they doing? Well, we're told here that not only were they praying, but Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons was there together. We see Peter again taking initiative. And I love this. This ought to be so encouraging to us. We see Peter taking initiative, and we're tempted to think, yeah, we've seen this before. We know Peter. We know his propensity to stand up and to open his mouth and quickly put his foot in it, right? And, and, and here is Peter. He's about to say something rash and foolish. We both know it, and yet we're going to find out that is not the case. And I can't read this without thinking about the Lord's gentle rebuke of Peter that day on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Three times for the three denials Lord, you know I love you, then what? Feed my sheep. Are you concerned that you've committed, brother or sister in Christ, some sin that has, that has moved you out and from under the grace of God and somehow sat you down on the bench where you have no purpose anymore in, in, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Be encouraged by this. Here is Peter taking up the reins of leadership again. He is humbled He is repentant, he is forgiven, and he is restored. And that coward who betrayed Christ in front of a servant girl with curses is now that rock that Christ has called him to be, standing boldly, taking initiative, demonstrating courage, his love for Christ, his love for the people of God. He's no longer licking his wounds. He's no longer in self-pity. No, he is out leading a gathering of 120 believers, and I don't think there's anything in that number other than Luke's penchant for details. Peter stands and he addresses them in the room, and we pick it up in verse 16, quote, Men, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Peter begins to deal with this lingering matter of what to do about Judas's betrayal and death. And you can imagine how disillusioning all of that must have been. You go back to that Last Supper, and Jesus starts talking about one betraying him, and everybody in the room says, what? Is it I, Lord? Nobody had any idea except for Judas and Jesus that Judas was the betrayer. That'll tell you something about, if I can say this in a sanctified way, Jesus' poker face. Jesus cared for Judas in the same way he cared for the other disciples. You and I, I don't think, could do this. There was no pulling back. And Jesus knew from the beginning, did he not? He said, I've chosen 12 of you, and yet one of you is a devil. That was right from the get-go. And what's even more astonishing is not just that Jesus knew that Judas was a betrayer, but Jesus chose him as the betrayer to be part of the 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel that God had chosen. And there were 12 disciples that Jesus had chosen. And God had made promises regarding the giving of the Holy Spirit and pouring it out upon Israel. And these men were were representatives of the nation. 
And you'll remember that Jesus made a promise to the disciples in Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We have 12 tribes, we need 12 men. Judas abandoned his privilege. And Judas is dead. And the question remains then, how is the prophecy of Christ going to be fulfilled? What are we going to do about this empty throne? There must be 12 of them, and there must be 12 of them by the day of Pentecost to fulfill the promises of God. And what do you do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when everything's gone haywire? I mean, this has been a chaotic last month, month and a half, hasn't it? The Messiah's been rejected. One of their own, one of the 12, one who shared their ministry has betrayed Christ. Jesus has been crucified. The king was killed and then the kingdom that they expected failed to materialize the way they thought it should and now Jesus has risen. That's not something that happens every day and he's ascended back up into heaven with a final farewell and a departure. This has been an emotional roller coaster and now Peter stands up and he says, I'll tell you what you do when you don't know what to do. I'll tell you what to do when you don't understand your circumstances. You look to the scriptures. I want your mind and your eye to catch that in verse 16. The scripture had to be fulfilled. You want the why for all that's gone on? Here's the answer. The scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, Peter now understands something that's very important to remember when you're disillusioned. That is that God rules the universe and everything unfolds just as the scripture tells us it will. You see, we tend to think that Jesus was cruising along and, and, and suddenly Judas does his thing and man, we gotta, we gotta now what? We gotta alter course. There's no altering course. Jesus has not been surprised. God was not caught off guard. Everything is happening according to plan, just as God has said. The disciples were caught off guard because they were lacking insight from the scriptures. But think about, for just a moment, how developed Peter's bibliology, his understanding of the, of, of the authorship and, and, and the, 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 the truth of the Bible is. He understood, didn't he, that, that prophecy is, is not only predictive, but it's really, really specific. The Holy Spirit, he says, has foretold something by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He understood. He also understood that Scripture ultimately is authoritative, and the reason that it is authoritative, it has to be fulfilled, is because he understood the divine authorship of Scripture. This was what the Spirit was revealing through the mouth of David through the pen of David. As these things were being written, yes, David was writing them. Peter also understood the human authorship of Scripture. But it was God who was speaking by the Holy Spirit. This is the same Peter, by the way, who wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by the will of man, but men moved, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And here's Peter unveiling that very truth. Now Luke interrupts Peter right here. You'll note that there are, there, there's, a, there's a parenthetical in here. Luke interrupts because he thinks that we as the reader need more information. He's going to give some further explanation about this man, Judas. And we know this because Peter clearly did not need to speak these words. In verse 19, you'll note that it says that 
it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. Those are the very people that Peter is speaking to, and if all of Jerusalem already understood these things, they wouldn't need to be explained. So we know that Luke here is adding something for our benefit. Look at verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness. This man carries a note of disdain. This man... Luke distances from. There's a tone of derision in this. The focus, in fact, is not just on Judas's punishment. He is, in fact, suffering the wages of his sin. He is, he is receiving the reward for his vile wickedness. But I want you to remember that Jesus dubbed Judas back in John 17, 12, in that high priestly prayer, he, he called Judas what? The son of perdition. That is to say that from the outset, Judas was a son of destruction. He was a son of damnation. And Jesus knew, again, from the very beginning that, that this one among the other 11 was a devil, and he chose Judas as the betrayer, again, God is in charge. Judas did exactly what he wanted, precisely what he wanted for his own wicked motives, and yet God is even over all of that. In fact, we're told in John 17, 12, that all of it, his betrayal, was to fulfill the scriptures. Again, we see these same words. But what I want you to note in this description is there is nothing sentimental here. There's none of the normal sort of, you know, nuanced discretion that's given in talking about the deceased. There's nothing gentle about this. There are no tears being shed for this man who did that thing. Luke wants us to feel the sense of shame and disgust. There's no hesitancy in exposing the Lord's betrayer. Look at it again. This man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness. And falling headlong, Luke says, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called, called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Matthew gives us the other half of this awful picture in Matthew 27. Beginning in verse 1, now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver. It's just like Judas to, to do this act for a little bit of money. You remember he kept, he kept the money purse, the box, with the disciples. He was the treasurer. He was in charge. He made sure of that because, uh, you know, sort of one for you, three for me kind of thing. He'd been pilfering all the way along. And here he sells out the Lord of glory for his, his own idolatry of money. Filthy mammon. He felt so guilty, he knew he'd betrayed innocent blood, so what does he do? He flings that blood money back at the chief priests. There's verse 4 saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Beloved, the recognition that you have sinned is not repentance from sin. The acknowledgement even of sin is not repentance from sin. He never bowed his knee. He never submitted himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He just felt awful. He felt loads of shame. The weight was unbearable for Judas. And so throwing back the money, he says, I have sinned, praying innocent blood. He even understood that Christ was sinless. But said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed and went away 
and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And taking counsel together, they bought with the money the potter's field, which is a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood until this day. You combine these two texts, and it must have been that Judas hanged himself perhaps over some kind of cliff or at some kind of height. That when the limb broke or the rope broke or the knot came untied, whatever it was, it dashed him to the ground with such violence that he burst open. And it may have been, some suggest, that he hung there long enough that in that Mideastern heat, that body had bloated, and that was why it, it exploded when he hit the ground. Whatever the case, infamously here, we get this very graphic picture of a tragic life that came to a tragic end. And Luke gives it as a warning. Beloved, every day when you wake up, Don't look to yesterday for the assurance of your salvation. Don't look to yesterday. Don't look to your works. Today is the day of salvation. Today I will follow Christ. Today I will will take up my cross. And you know, Judas did not escape his guilt and shame by taking his life. That's always the lie of suicide, is that somehow by taking the back door out, I'm going to escape the awful pain that I am in. All he did was increase his sorrow and sealed his torment forever. In hell. In verse 24, we're told that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And I told you last week that heaven is a place. Four times heaven is mentioned in, in, in those verses we looked at last week regarding the ascension. Jesus, remember, we were saved for a person. We're saved for a place. Heaven is real. It is a real place. Well, so it is with hell. And Judas goes to his own place. Jesus has prepared for us a place with him. And Judas has his own place. And he is in hell not because he took his life. Don't miss that. The Catholics have taught for years that if you committed the sin of suicide, that's self-murder. If you did that, that was it for you. No, Jesus can forgive even murder. Judas is in hell because he rejected Christ and he would not repent and believe. And I can't help but note the juxtaposition in verse 25 of the fact that Judas traded his place among the disciples for his own place in hell. And this became known to all Jerusalem. Well, we return now to Peter speaking And he quotes two specific verses from two different psalms. Look at verse 20 with me. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. That's a reference to Judas. Let Judas's residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And he adds another text, and this is from another psalm, and he says, let another man take his office. And so what do we have here? Well, we have Peter helping the church, if you will, even though the the, the Spirit will be poured out, it will be the church once the Spirit comes. But in this sort of infant stage, if you will, we have Peter standing up among these who have been praying, and he begins to help them understand the events of of, of their past couple of months He helps them understand what what they were troubled by. What do we make of Judas? 
Look first that he, he, Peter uses the scripture to interpret the events in the past. He quotes from Psalm 69, 25. Let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Well, that had been fulfilled already in Judas's life. Peter had undoubtedly learned these things from the Lord. The Lord taught him. Do you see that this, this is a reference ultimately, fully, finally to Judas? David is writing originally about the enemies of God and the punishment that will come to them, but in the very specific details of all of this, prophetically, David apply, or Peter applies this to Judas himself. He vacated his seat, and no one was dwelling in it. But then Peter says, it's not only the way to look at your past, but you can look at things in the present. Here's what you, you do when, when you're in need in the present. He quotes from Psalm 109.8 that people want to know, what do we do? What do we do about this empty throne? What do we do about Judas who's fallen, whose seat is empty? He draws on Psalm 109 and verse 8, let his days be few. Who? Judas's. And let another take his office. Peter says, you want to understand what happened in the past? Judas fulfilled scripture he betrayed the Christ, and he gave up his place among us. He gave up his place in this ministry. He gave up that throne that might have been his. But you want to know what we should do about the present? Well, the text of Scripture says, let another take his office. We need to fill that seat, in other words. And the point is simply this that I'm trying to make, and I think Luke is trying to make that here. What he wants us to see is not only that they were dependent upon the Lord in prayer, but they are dependent upon the Lord's word. They relied entirely upon the word of God for their understanding and their direction. And now that they had the direction of God, what was there left to do? Obey it. That's our third point. They were determined to obey. They were determined to obey. If the scriptures foretold the betrayal and judgment of Judas, and they do, and if the scriptures call for his replacement, that his seat be filled, and they do, well, then there was nothing to do but obey the Lord. Verse 21, therefore, don't miss this, it is necessary. Again, this is one of Luke's common themes, the necessity of things happening under the sovereign control of God. It is necessary that the men, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Again, if there were two qualified men, why not just have 13? The more the merrier. Because this is tied in again to Israel. This is tied in again to God's plan from the beginning. And so he gives them two prerequisites for Judas's replacement. Number one, whoever it was that was going to take Judas's place had to have been with the disciples and with Jesus during Jesus's public ministry, about three and a half years. And again, we tend to think it was Jesus and those other 12 guys, and that was it. There was room for 13 in the boat, no more. But the fact is there were others following along. We already know that the women were there. Well, there were some disciples of Christ who were not part of the 12 who had been following along. And Peter says this is one of the qualifications for being an apostle. You have to have been taught by Christ. You have to have watched the life of Christ. And then he tells them that Secondly, you must be a witness to the resurrection, the ascended Christ. And that's why we get these parameters that they had to be there from John's baptism, which is right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, until the day that he was taken up from us. You could think of it this way. If, if you're an athletic sort of minded person, maybe you've heard the term a red shirt freshman. A redshirt freshman is a freshman who's not quite ready to play yet, so you give him an extra year of eligibility. How do you do that? Well, he's allowed to practice with the team. He can travel with the team. He can 
room with the team. He can even put on a uniform with the team. He can go to the games and sit on the bench with the team. As long as you don't put him in, he does not lose his eligibility. Well, there have been some red shirt disciples following along with Christ and the 12, and now one of those red shirt freshmen are going to get in the game. And so they put forth two men. Here they are, a man by the name of Joseph called Barsabbas, son of the Sabbath, if you will, who was also called Justice, and a man by the name of Matthias. And I want you to note the first three words again of verse 24, and they what? They prayed. Of course they did. What else would they do? It's a very intensive word for prayer. And again, you see this utter dependence upon God. Their dependence upon the word for instruction and direction and understanding. Their their dependence upon prayer. They're always looking to the Lord, looking for his will, looking for his direction, looking for his help. Do you live like this? Or are you consumed with worry? You're just going to take all the facts and work it out because you're intelligent and you're rational. And you've got the resources. These people have none of that. I mean, they're just like you and me. They're rational. They're intelligent. But do you note how, how everything comes before the Lord? Everything. They pray, verse 24, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. How instructive, again, for our own praying. You'll notice they didn't just look for the two qualified guys, put them forward and say, Lord, bless it. We like Matthias. We think he's best. Lord bless it. No. What do they do? They're not trusting in their own insight. They're they're not praying according to their own will. They put it before the omniscience of God to say, look, we know this is more about than what we can see. You know the hearts of these men. And you know, Lord, which one you have chosen. So we want your will, not our own. You see, the disciples, though they are now on earth and charged with carrying on the task of apostleship, they do not have an independent mindset whatsoever. They're not just engaging the work and, and, and you know, that okay, we got a task to do, boys, let's move on. No, they are mindful as they do the Lord's work to depend upon the Lord to fill Judas's vacant seat. And they have two qualified men, men that they knew, men that measured up as far as they were aware, but they didn't know which of these two qualified men were the ones the Lord had chosen. And so they ask him, Lord, please help us to know which one you have chosen. You see, this is the mark of humble, dependent, effectual prayer. Thy will be done. And notice that their prayer is enjoined with faith. Look at verse 26. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. Simple enough, right? You say, give me those lots. I got some decisions to make, right? (laughs) But think of it, beloved. How confident were these people in the sovereignty of God that even whether that pair of dice that were rolled out or stones that maybe one was black and one was white. I, I don't know how they did it. Did they grab into a bag? Did they throw it in the lap? I'm not sure. But they were confident, stone-cold confident that God would answer these prayers according to those lots. In our day, they would have flipped a coin You know, heads Matthias, tails Joseph. Ping, right? It's amazing. 
Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every judgment is from the Lord. And it was an accepted Old Testament method for determining the will of God. We see it a number of times in Scripture. If you want to look them up, I'll give them to you. Leviticus 16.8 and following. Numbers 26.55 and following. Joshua 7.14. 1 Samuel 10.20. 14.41. And Proverbs 18.18. I told you back a number of weeks ago when we were introducing this book, we would bump into a bunch of stuff where we'd have to ask, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this telling us what they did or is this telling us what they did and what we should be doing? Listen, this is not the way you want to make decisions in the Christian life. This is not the way you want to choose elders. This is not the way you want to choose a wife. This is not the way you want to decide whether to, to buy the, the red one or the blue one. This is something that was accepted in the Old Testament, but here we are on the other side of the giving of the Spirit of God. We have the wisdom of God in the Scriptures. We have and we seek God's will. These, these people were still in the Old Testament Economy. In fact, it's intriguing and instructive that you do not see them doing this ever again in the scriptures. After the giving of the Spirit, there is no record of the casting of lots. And the text simply tells us, as though it's no big deal, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. God answered their prayers, and they are ready now for Pentecost. Why are all these things important for us? Well, I think above everything else, they teach us about God and his sovereignty, his authority and his right to rule, and the fact that he does providentially rule, beloved, not just in the lives of these people all those years ago, but in the smallest details of your life. And what you see and what I think Luke is trying to build out as he records these things is that God's kingdom is unstoppable. It is moving forward without Judas and in spite of Judas. Everything is working to plan. What Judas meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan tried to derail, God did not allow. Judas' betrayal was not even a hiccup in the plan of God. There was no frustration in it. There was no surprise in it. There was no failure of God. There was no triumph of the wicked man, not even for a moment. All of it was according to plan. Everything was predestined in advance. And all of this is to cause us to sit there with our jaw amazed at how everything works according to plan. Even though Satan had filled the heart of Judas, Satan cannot thwart the plans of God. Satan cannot rob you from the hands of God. Satan cannot do things outside of the will of God. Quit attributing to the evil one power that he does not have. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. God foretold Judas's betrayal, foretold his judgment, foretold his eternal dwelling. Thousand years prior to any of this transpiring, God was well aware. God even foreordained his replacement. And that's the point. God is in charge. Nobody else is in charge. God wins, period. 
It's this divine necessity again that, that Luke's trying to get out. Everything working out just as it should. And I tell you, beloved, if you had a grasp on that, if you trusted that, it changes everything. Everything. You will find yourself settled you will find yourself strengthened. You'll find yourself encouraged. You'll find yourself in your front yard smelling roses again because you go, you know what? God's got it. I don't have to be in such a panic about life. I love texts like this. <laughs> I sit in my office and I go, Lord, what do you do with this? Oh, it's clear, isn't it? Even the evil that Jesus or Judas perpetrated on Jesus ultimately serves the purposes of God. Everything is in place for the birth of the church and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's all wrapped up. We're ready to go. And that should delight our hearts. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Lord, how thrilling it is for us to see your sovereignty, to see your authority to see your power manifested. Lord, your will is like a freight train moving down the tracks and no one and nothing can derail your purposes. Lord, we see your transformational work in the lives of your people. We see your goodness in teaching them. We see your goodness in preparing them and providing for them. We see your grace, Lord, in restoring Peter and the rest of the apostles. We see your faithfulness in filling Judas's spot. Lord, we see this kind of love, this kind of care, this kind of specificity of your blessing in our own day. And Lord, I pray that you would help us that we might follow you in the faithful pattern that they have left for us from the very beginning. We see your sufficiency and your wisdom and your power, and it's only right that we should seek you, Lord, at all times and learn to wait upon you prayerfully and biblically and obediently. And Lord, we ask that we would be a people just as they were devoted to prayer. We'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who would, who would never turn away but would ever be dependent upon your word and growing in our understanding of it. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are determined to obey you in everything. And in all of this, Lord, may you be glorified for you are worthy. In Christ's name, amen. Our benediction this morning comes from the 15th chapter of Romans. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.